0: Welcome to Direction Correct, a people's podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, John Eisenstock.
1: Thanks to our sponsors, Orgnostic. Fast track the insights behind your people data using Orgnostic by connecting all your HR data in one people analytics platform. Quickly uncover the insights you need to measure the success of your people initiatives. Orgnostic is the most innovative people analytics generative ai data orchestration and employee listening tool on the market to learn more book a demo at orgnostic.com slash directionally correct
0: well that's the thing it's like you get to like fast and furious 8 and it's like what are we doing
1: here see and i've never even seen oh i take that back i saw fast and the furious 3 tokyo drift just because, <laughs> you know, i'll tell you why it's kind of like the he-man thing it's because i like the soundtrack I was listening to the music. I was like, well, I'll go watch this movie because I like the music. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, I I was
0: dragged to Fast and Furious One. And like on the 47th car
1: race scene, I was like, I leaned over to my friend Jenny. I was like, what the fuck are we doing here? Like, I'll be honest, I don't understand car racing, period. Like, I don't understand NASCAR or Formula One or like drag racing or any, like, I've always, my, th- this will tell you everything you need to know. My first car was a minivan. Oh, you, quick, oh, yeah, me too. You're not first to get a minivan until you have children. And I had a minivan.
0: Well, check this out. Uh, I drove my mother's blue Astrovan to school. And uh, my friend David, he had a black Astrovan. And, but he, he put
1: D-Man across the top. And we would race it, our, our Astrovans. That, <laughs> that's Fast and the Furious combined with my first car <laughs> together. <laughs> What's up, John? Hey there. Uh, we're we're talking about kind of how <laughs> the Fast and the Furious <laughs> franchise oh, jumped this, the this shark. Is what I was and... Worried about? Yeah. So, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Do you have any crazy cool. high school
0: experiences, John, that you care to share publicly?
2: Yeah, there were a lot. There was a lot in that sentence crazy high school publicly uh i did not drive, I did not drive an astro van i had a fantastic uh grand am that had been passed down in generations for generations of my family um and i i was very um it took me a while to realize you could you could open it up like and by open it up i mean like 40 you know um,
0: like the back end shakes like when you get yeah, to 40
2: yep yeah. Oh, no, it was bad. It was everything. Everything shook. Everything shook like right around thirty five. And then at 40, it was rearing um, burning oil, burning whatever. Um, but no, was, there was there was nothing good. Uh, I am. In, I, I, I am trying to envision, though, two Astrovans gunning it. Um, oh,
0: you haven't seen anything like it, clearly. Well, my my very first job out of college
2: um, was working as a manufacturing engineer for an auto parts uh, manufacturer, a tier one auto supplier. And so at one point I got put on a plane with no experience and no real understanding. I jumped on a plane and flew to Baltimore where the van, where those vans are built and uh, super, I mean, super nice people. And the first thing, first words out of their mouth were, thank God you're here. And the first thought in my head was why? Um, and they were having trouble getting these things off the production line. And I had to, I pretty much took one apart um, like, I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I just figured, all right, well, let's just dive in. <laughs> and I, I, and, and with the help of a couple of, a couple of folks, I, I took a part on Astrovan uh, and spread the parts all over this big, uh, you know, part of the production floor. And I'm looking around at it and, you know, looking really like, you know, like, Oh yeah, I know what I'm looking at. Um, I did actually find the problem, but it wasn't because I knew what I was looking for. It's just cause I almost, I literally tripped over it. It was a wiring harness really cut in it. And I did actually trip over it. And noticed that uh, that was where the short was, but that's my only Astro experience is that it uh, is that I took one apart.
0: Fresh eyes. Clearly. Yeah. Oh yeah. You, you were like a mechanical engineer. Like, wait, how, how did they say like, come on, John, <laughs> Well, we need, I, we, need I, you, we need you on this production line right now.
2: I'm an industrial engineer, which means I have an engineering degree in applied math. Mm. So there's lots of que- There were lots of questions with, about sending me there. One, uh, industrial engineer, not a manufacturing engineer. And what they really needed was an electrical engineer. And I wasn't that either. There's another story about me, uh, with me, uh, my next job was actually running production lines, um, for a company that made slot machines and we were, uh, and video games. And I was in, uh, uh, council bluffs, Iowa with another bunch of people on my team. And the, the, these machines, we were rolling out a brand new product. The machines weren't working. And this other guy wasn't was a mechanical engineer, and that was me, an industrial engineer. We were looking at a multimeter, trying to figure out how to connect this multimeter to a to a video game. And we're like, which one's red? Which one's yellow? Like, we just we had nothing. We were like, it was. And, and the customers just like staring at us, like, what do you do? We're like, oh yeah, we know what we're doing. We're just, um, uh, I don't know, we're we're making sure the multimeter is you know clean. I mean, it was just it was. Uh, so why? why employers would send me on these trips to fix things. Uh, we fixed that too, by the way, now that I think about it. Um, uh, but why they would send me to fix these things, uh, I think has more to do with the fact that I ended up in sales and I can project confidence when I have none. So that would, I think, be the, be the answer. But yeah, that, those are not the worst, <laughs> those are not the worst stories about me trying to fix something that I had no idea uh, what was going on, but there, there seems to be a bunch of them.
1: So John, I, I want to come back to the engineering point, but you're really throwing me off with this mug. <laughs> so well, what's going on here? What you drinking on, man?
2: This is coffee. Um, cup number two for the morning. Um, I don't know. It, it, I mean, there's nothing. What is it, uh, it's got a lid. Oh, it is. It is from a, um, it is from a vendor who I will, I'll leave it covered because they're not sponsoring your podcast.
1: Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, Thank you kindly.
2: To me, it's just a mug. But is this uh, is something about this mug, you know, relevant to your, you know, you're like, oh, it looks like this or something. What, What's the story?
1: No, it's just you're holding it really close to your face. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Oh. No, it's cool, man. Well, I'm well, curious. Oh, so I do want to come back, though, to the engineering point. So how does a engineer ultimately end up in HR or in people analytics or in IO psychology, or you, you, mm-hmm. you kind of take, take that where you want to go with it.
2: Okay. Uh, well, at least we have time. So let's see.
0: Um, you want to introduce I, John before we get too yeah. deep into this? Would that be a yeah. Better... Yeah.
1: I'll go ahead and do that. And maybe that'll yep. tee up your answer. Mm-hmm. So we've got uh, John Eisenstark with us, uh, former AWS, former CB, former Volterra. He's worked with some really cool people uh, in the I.O. space like Nancy Tippins, Ben Snyder, Dick Jenneret and Bill Macy. Um, for our I.O. listeners out there, they'll know that's like some of the greatest hits. Folks, um, currently consulting with an HR tech firm on the go-to-market strategies as a chief revenue officer. Um, fun fact, he was at Game 7 of the World Series where the Cubs won, which wow. a really interesting, good, uh, good, good place to be, by the way. Um, but yeah, um, welcome. And thank you so much for joining us, John.
2: Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I,
0: I think that John is one of the most plugged in guys I know. Like he, he somehow found me uh, where I work. And he, I think he just kind of bounces around and like scrapes ideas from various folks. Like, like you hear about like Steve Jobs. Like he was famous for bouncing around Silicon Valley and like being the first to hear information. That's kind of how I see John as well.
1: Well, that's, uh, that, that's a
0: skill too. How, how oh, do you totally. do that, John?
2: No, I think that's an exaggeration. I just, I just, <laughs> uh, I just like to talk to interesting people. I'm always asking questions and people, I said, where do I find the answers? And there was a guy at AWS who, who said, wait a you want those answers? Oh, you need to talk to Scotty. And I said, who or what is Scotty? <laughs> uh, and uh, they're like, oh, he's an IO psychologist. He's over here. He's doing amazing work. So Um, so yeah, that's, I mean, I, I, I think, I think, uh, you know, I just, I like, uh, I like learning new things. Um, and so, uh, and I like talking to people who know more than I do. So that's, and so that's just sort of the, that's the, that, that's kind of how I end up connecting with folks,
0: uh, around. Um, And the legend of Scotty grows. Yeah. That's That's what I know.
2: Yeah. No. Oh, no, no. Believe me. You were, you were, you were better than advertised.
0: Oh like why like, thank you, John. Oh my gosh. We need to have John, you. John, you're yet. already
1: here. You don't have to butter us up anymore.
0: <laughs> but your your um, background is in sales and people analytics. And like I think yep. that's a realm that uh you know obviously has internal focus and external focus. What what are the ins and outs of it? What what do people know, should know, all this sort of good stuff.
2: You know, I've always so I so I well this is actually kind of related to what, what Cole had had asked. I I didn't intend to be in sales. I had actually, uh, always envisioned myself as this manufacturing guy, you know, producing, you know, the building plants and supply chains and everything. And, um, I came to the realization that what made, uh, effective operations was not really about, you know, six Sigma or, you know, continuous improvement, but it was really about leadership, um, and whether or not the leadership drove success. And so I ended up, uh, it's a long, it is a longer story, but I ended up, um, uh, taking a job at uh, at Valterra, which was a firm of biopsychologists. they worked with like the Fortune 100. It was you know if you were if you were a, a kind of a, a, a if you were a, a big um, uh, firm with a pretty well developed HR function, you were using Valterra for your selection testing or your assessment centers or your employee surveys. and that was kind of the 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 stretch of it. But I got to learn a lot. I really wanted to know about how, where leaders come from, you know, how leaders are made, how do I replicate other leaders? Um, It never occurred to me that was an HR function at the time, I was in manufacturing. HR was the, you know, if there was a, if there was an organization within the business that could slow manufacturing down, chances are it was HR. Uh, so I had never had any interest in it and I just had an opportunity to work with people who were like, oh, Hey, you know, I wrote this book with Bill Byam called the assessment center method. Maybe you might want to read it. And
0: I got a, mm-hmm. God, Joel,
2: this guy, Joe Moses just hands me a copy. I'm sitting there and you know, it's like this big, it's you know, thin pages, tiny words. Um, but it just gave me an opportunity to ask questions as I learned about these things. And i wanted to learn how to sell because I felt like in my quest to be, you know, CEO somewhere. If I understood how to be a good operations leader, and then I understood how to sell business, you could. That's how you. That's how you got to be CEO somewhere. And um, and lo and behold, I found I just really uh, found what I learned about HR to be really compelling. That they're not just. They're not just. They're not just administrative. It's not just. It's not just how do you slow things down. You. They have the opportunity to be really, really. Um, strategic in the business and so i just fell in love with it and and then i've always felt um that sales should be a force for good so people should you know people people should leave an interaction with a seller having learned something uh, whether they agree with you or not they should have learned something and they should have and they should have some ideas to chew on um, and and you should be able to innovate uh through these communications with customers and and you know. And innovate at scale, so it's not just a one-on-one mm-hmm. uh, type experience. So, and that's why I just continue to to work at it because, especially in people analytics and HR technology, um, you you I find a lot of uh, a lot of people just get locked into the product, not actually how you use it, and it's how you use it which really generates value. So, you got to be able to tell stories and help customers determine um, how they're best gonna. You know, make their human capital a strategic advantage because if you're just buying a, a piece of technology to automate functions you have or to run calculations everyone else is doing the same thing and if you're doing it the same thing as everyone else does one of you doesn't have a strategic advantage over the other does that make sense
1: it does well i think it's kind of related i think you had a question for us sort of about this topic i don't know do you want to bring that up john
2: Oh, you know, one of the, so, yeah, I mean, this is a good question. I mean, Scotty, you're in HR, Cole, you were, you were in HR for a long time. I think HR leaders, HR leaders get fired when something doesn't work. You know, that's the, when, 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 when something goes wrong, right wrong. Well, <laughs> I, ideally. I mean,
1: sometimes I, they don't.
2: <laughs> ideally, you lose your job if, if things aren't working, but they get promoted though. Um, or at least I think they should get promoted. If they bring something to, to the business, they bring a capability to the business they didn't have before. And, and you're right, I don't think it's always true. But I, I find when I talk to HR leaders, you've got a small percentage of them that wanna bring new capabilities to the business and interact with the business in different ways. The overwhelming majority of HR leaders just wanna make sure nothing jumps the rails. Yeah. So the, I find that one of the biggest challenges uh, is giving an HR leader new ideas and new ways to interact with the business um, and making them feel confident enough that they can, are willing to take the risk. Um, and, and by the way, I can, I'm just thinking through that, you, now that you, you made me think about it, Cole, no, no, I absolutely know folks that, had, that, were, that were not, that where things went wrong, they, they chose a survey vendor and the survey crashed. Uh, I can think of a, a guy really, he happens to be an IO psychologist, was an executive at a big technology company really a great guy chose a vendor and the vendor crashed and he that he unfortunately lost his lost his role and went on to actually bigger and better things but i mean you you do lose it you do you do lose i mean you have to there's there's green fees green greens fees um i think where things need to work but you could probably get by with only providing solutions that that you know give the minimum and no one and no one thinks the latter of it they don't they don't get the point where they're trying to push
0: I think that's the point, though. Like, like some things are just run the business. Like, people need yeah. to be paid. They're like, the accounting system needs to work. Uh, you need to people's uh, vacation time needs to be accurately accounted for. Like all this sort of stuff. But there's these other sort of like I O sort of like employee listening, employee productivity. These sort of things where we can lean in as I O specifically, and help out. You know, make people enrich their lives, make them better at their jobs. These sort of things, which is more experimental. So it's like this, like. Uh, sort of duplicitous role that HR leaders must play, depending on your specific part of HR, right?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people do go into HR because it is oftentimes can be a business as usual type of role, right? And it can, you know, uh, but I guess to your point, John, you know, you do have to build a capability to get promoted by the business and be that strategic partner. Maybe, Maybe not as many people want to get promoted perhaps as as you might think in these type of functions um, I find that you know if HR is going to be a strategic partner of the business it's kind of like getting asked to the dance like they have to want to dance with you and you have to want to dance with them and that's the only way the match gets made and so I think that that's where the real magic can happen in terms of building strategic capabilities for the business
2: I agree I agree and I actually think but I'll, I'll add one more thing I think that the I think the the other trap that that we fall into, and I think technology has helped us fall into this trap, is we think about a solution across the entire business rather than the needs of individual you know, internal mm. customers. So that I have a, I mean, a great story as a, a very good friend of mine was in charge of people analytics for like a thirty or forty thousand person business. Um, she, uh, you know, she she did all the things that were necessary, you know, attrition and, and survivability and, and all the things you're supposed to do in those roles and, and provide those dashboards. And she's she's sitting there talking to, um, you know, part of their supply chain organization. And they're just like, yeah, you know, we like the dashboards. We follow the data, but it doesn't change our decision. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't impact us. It tells us when things have gone wrong. Um, mm-hmm. You know, how do we, God, we're, you know, we're really interested in, And how do we reduce our, uh, our, our incident rates in the, on the, on the, on the warehouse floors? How do we, how do we keep, not not what our attrition rate is, but how do we keep the people that, that are, you know, better performers, Um, you know, and, and these are things that are really relevant to that very narrow uh, slice of the business. And so she's like, Oh, well, we have all that data. Actually we have, you know, survey data and we have, Um, we have, we have demographic data and all this stuff that we can look at, um, and and start to, to tease out, uh, tease out needs, but because, and, and they were really successful the end of the story is very successful, great insights, business, that part of the business performance metrics went way up and the executive who ran it said it was because we got, we got actionable, insightful, uh, people data to work with. However, she never would have known... Um, and and her customer never would have thought to ask whether or not um, yeah people not, don't
0: know what they want right they don't know what
2: they want they don't and they don't know what, what people analytics can provide you know they're like oh people analytics they provide these nifty dashboards that say my attrition rate is seventeen percent this month that's all they think um, no one knows you can do you know organizational network analysis or right. no one knows you know
0: or what to do with it
2: yeah or what to do with it or what to do with it so I do think that some of it is. Um, being able to to provide case studies that are easily understood, not just on an average, you know. So this is part of selling, right? It's not just to say, hey, we have a new widget, but here's how this here's how you could seamlessly use this widget to make your business better. And here are some steps you can take. And when you're internal, um, I think it's even more important to be able to say, look, he, you know, here's here's the mechanism that you're going to get from, you know, this outcome from this data, and use it in this way. Um, and as the vendor side, you know, Cole, I think I I do think that that customers need that. They don't, you know, we, we because not everyone can have uh, an account management system like AWS, where, you know, every customer has got like seven people they draw upon, we've got to be able to give um, some scalable techniques to customers so that they can take the data they've got and then know what to do, with, what the next round to do with it is. Um,
0: uh,
2: that's just my opinion. But I, I do think, I, I think we're getting there. It's just, it's tough.
0: You know, as I mentioned, like John is super plugged in. He's also he's also a techie. He, he loves all the advanced analytics, all this sort of great stuff. Well, what what do you see as the next big thing? Like you got AI, you know, gen AI, this sort of thing. W- where does this fit in? What What's coming next? What are you hearing?
2: God, that's a good question. I think there are two things that are going to be important. They're going to be the underpinnings of other advances that we haven't come up with yet. The first is generative AI. Although... Generative AI has actually been around a long time. Like the the mm-hmm. like the, the things that you could, the, the people, the things that people are talking about with generative AI, there are people that have already made that happen. You know, whether it's internal like at Amazon or whether you're a vendor, a lot of those uh, capabilities, you know, aren't actually that much easier to implement with generative AI as it was to do with, with regular AI. If you wanted to implement those features, you could have done it already. But what I do think generative AI is going to allow us to do. Is move um, HR techniques, whether it's analytics or whether it's development or, or performance, further into the flow of work, so that now um, you know when I'm a kind of when I'm a seller and I'm slacking my colleague to say, you know, hey, how do I you know what what should I talk to this customer about, or how do I solve this problem, or who can I connect this person to? Generative AI is going to be able to to then say, hey, you know what? Um, don't forget. Uh, here are some of the, here are some of the, the thinkers or the, the opinion leaders you should connect to on this issue. Um, here, are the, uh, here are some of the resources we have internally for you to use. And um, and by the way, don't forget to uh, talk about these drivers of service climate. You know, like, you know, it, yeah. in, in somewhere in the flow. And I think, and I think, that's, I think that's the value we're going to see. Yeah, I, I keep we're waiting
1: for the up. AI personal assistance. Like, it's yeah. like, come on, take over my life please i need it so badly he's like information on demand slash coaching on demand right yep yep
2: yep and and you're going to be able to use that too. think about performance like i you know i don't think anyone talks about i think i think the performance management wave is over but you remember when people were talking about performance management it's this process we do it once a year it has nothing to do with it um and, and no one likes it and no one likes what they you know, continually no one likes it. I, I'm pretty sure yeah, we
1: if, talked about it in our last episode. Really? I'm pretty sure if you if you were to do it and if
2: you were to have like a net promoter score of, of performance management and don't don't I'm just using it as an example, don't I don't want to talk about NPS. But uh, if if you were if like I'm pretty sure MPS scores of performance management are the same today as they were five years ago when everybody thought we had to to change it. I'm I'm fairly certain no one thinks it's any better or any worse than it was before. Um, but if you could integrate development and feedback further up the chain, so it's seamless and you're getting in the moment feedback, uh, when, when, the, when the defining moments happen, that are the ones that, that change your, um, change your opinion or change the way you see your manager or the way you perceive psychological safety. Like if you're able to get that type of feedback at the right time, that's, that's something that generative AI will be able to do easier than traditional AI. And I, so I think, as we evolve the tools we're currently using, that's, the, that's my hope. So generative AI, I don't think is big. I think it's going to be the applications of generative AI.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: For yeah, them. it's um, the substrate that you yeah. know, everything else is built on. Yeah, because it'll I'm be curious to build those chains. I, I kind of have a selfish question, John, and you're one of the few people out there that I feel like I could ask this to because you've had both a successful career internally, but also on the vendor side and you I think you're kind of in that transition again right now um, how do you do that successfully it's a really weird transition to make i I think we haven't really talked about it much on the podcast, but you know I've been internal most of my career and then I made the the transition to external and it's 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 definitely a different skill set what What has your experience been
2: well so I've never been internal although um uh, I always sometimes I fantasize about it, um, but I've actually never been pure internal. Even at AWS, I ran their HR business, um, mm-hmm. their their go to market uh, for that. So I do really appreciate, you know, HR, and I think part of it is because I came from a I came from a background where I had no opinion of HR whatsoever, or I felt like that was like the problem. It was like, oh my god, this is awful, um, and. And so I wanted to fix it. You know, I wanted to fix HR. That was my, that was my, you know, that was probably one of the reasons I, I, I became so ingrained in this, in this field was I'm like, how do I make HR work better? How can I help them?
0: You know? Very noble goal. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, no, more like arrogant. Just decent. Back, <laughs> then, back then I felt like yes. I knew better. I felt like, back then I just felt like I knew better.
0: Uh, it's like but, a grad student coming out of yeah. uh, school. Like yeah. everyone's been doing it wrong. It's time for me to come in.
2: Absolutely. No, that's 100%. After CEB, after Val, or CEB bought Valterra, and then I started, uh, uh, I, I, I raised some money. and I started a business called Culture Factors, and I exited out of that um, uh, right before the pandemic, actually. I uh, was looking around, trying to decide what to do next, and this, this job at AWS opened up, um, or, or they, they, they wanted to actually staff it. And so I was very skeptical about going to work for a big company, actually. I'd never, I mean, the biggest company I had ever worked for was when we sold Valterra to a CEB, and they were like 3,000 people. And then we bought SHL, and that was like another 1,000. Um, I had no context for a large organization. But I'm like, all right, I want to give this a shot. And I get to AWS, and I'm like, oh, my God, it's huge. It's like no one even knows how many employees they have. And if you were to find out, we can't tell you because it's, it's confidential. It's like, the, oh, yeah, the business is 1.6 million, just. Go with it. Cast adrift in that sea of people, um, I latched onto the people that I knew, which are people in HR and, and people that I have a common frame of reference with. So that's, by the way, how I ended up talking to Scotty. Because no one calls the VP of Talent Management just to chat at AWS. Because why would you want to? They're in HR. I though want to hang out with the people that I knew um, or that I wanted to know. So, um, so for me. HR, I mean, honestly, more people, the more, I mean, and I can say this for a fact, my time at AWS, I hung out with HR more than I did people on the, you know, the cloud engineers um, because those people <laughs> had, I have similar interests um, and I wanted to help. So, uh, but yeah, no, no, I've never, but I've never actually been in HR. I will say um, I enjoy the consulting I'm doing now. I, I'm not sure if I'm ever going to go back to, you know, startups or small, small vendors. I do. I, I feel like I have one more left in me. I, I did. I enjoyed all my time uh, at Valterra every minute of it. I enjoyed uh, my time at Culture Factors, um, but it does require a different frame of reference.
1: Well, speaking of your time at Culture Factors, first, I wanted to give you a shout out. Thanks for putting the bill a few years ago at a up party we had. That was a lot of fun. So well done there. Yes. Um, But you've been in this space before. I actually came across something this week of um, a recent meta analysis on the link between work engagement and job performance, which I know (laughs) you've spent some time at some firms that were heavily invested in this space. So um, authors Corbanu and a few others, but it, it shows that I think for the first time that there's a direct linkage from a meta-analysis standpoint between work engagement, which they define as vigor, dedication, and absorption, and task performance and contextual performance. Um, it looks like the ranges of the the Rs are about 0.36 to 0.38 uh, on the different kinds of measures. But there's been this age-old debate, you know, of does engagement you know, cause performance. And I I wouldn't say that they're saying that this is a causal mechanism, Mm -hmm. but, or is it, you know, performance that causes engagement? But I think this is pretty, pretty solid evidence that at least work engagement matters. Um, And so I thought this might be an interesting thing that for you to see, John, but also Scott, do you have any thoughts on this? Well, I mean, it makes intuitive sense, right? So like
0: if you're actually engaged in your job, which is usually broken down into sort of things you talked about, absorption, proud to work here, this sort of thing. You're probably going to perform better. Like you're going to be put into that discretionary effort and engagement is largely a motivational construct in itself. So, I mean, these findings aren't surprising
1: (laughs) in itself, right? Oh, it's not the bombshell I thought it was. Oh, oh, my bad. What what do you think, John? (laughs) Well, so
2: uh, yeah, I mean, I a lot, this research I think has been really good, um, and I think it's been good and compelling for a long time. To be honest, although um, I did actually see that article float by or someone posted it on LinkedIn, I didn't I didn't read it. Um, but uh, I will say that you know the one thing that people uh, <laughs> like yeah, I'm try, I'm trying to remember an old an old uh, an old soapbox speech I used to give you know. It does depend. The outcomes, I don't think, have ever been in question. I think what's been in question is how you measure it, and and whether or not you can be engaged, but but being engaged, doing something valuable for the business, and because uh, I think because I think you can be you can be highly engaged and not providing any value. That's I and I think that's you know that's that's a conversation of burnout. That's a step to burnout. And I think um, and I think a lot of people who look at their engagement data. You know, just from the just from the context of the employee survey, they're like, "Oh, I don't understand." You know, my engagement scores keep going up, but my team just keeps performing the same. Is that is that good or bad? People get so obsessed with um, chasing leaders who aren't biopsychologists and aren't in HR. They get so uh, obsessed with chasing a number score, watching it trend, that they forget the context behind the number and how to make better use of it. And in fact, I was just talking to uh, uh, a CEO. Um, Last week about sur- about survey data, which I don't talk about that much anymore. But he was really obsessed. He's he's a dashboard kind of guy. I'm really obsessed with watching this number go up. the number's mm-hmm. not going up, it must be it must be bad. And I'm like, I, you need to think about it. It's, you need to think about the data in the context. And you're you're thinking about aggregate data. And I would argue that you know 88 on some scale is really the same as 80, and could really be the same as 75. Like just higher is not better. You know, it's it's higher towards the stuff you want to be be doing. And if you're, and if you've always been, you know, if, if you're measuring something and it's always been about the same, I think there's a strong argument to say, maybe you don't measure that that much anymore. Maybe you, maybe you walk away from it and start measuring things that do, are that, that tend to be more relevant. So um, yeah, I mean, but, but I do think it's, it's, it's being able to, it's engagement that's, that's relevant to the job uh, at hand and the business at hand. And I think, um, I think that the future of measurement is gonna be start is, and, and generative AI will help this, although I don't think it'll help that much, but I do think that the underlying technologies that are connecting all our systems together are gonna to help start to collect data, uh, both predictive and descriptive data from people's jobs that are just away out, outside of survey data and, and outside of communication data. And I think that's where you're gonna see a lot of value where you can get really predictive on, on where people can be better
0: speaking of value john like you were flashing your mug earlier i mean you worked in sales and marketing for a while like what's the best piece of swag you've ever
1: received anything good oh good question
2: it is a good question i'm not going to go get it for you but i have a i have a bottle of bourbon nice that was uh specialty labeled It's it's a good bottle of bourbon specially labeled by a by a vendor it was not me and I actually have no idea why they gave it to me. To be honest, I would not have wasted. That. I would. I would have not have wasted the kind of money this created on me. But uh, that would be the best swag. It, it was. It's incredible. Um, I've. I've never. Always no the
1: humble that. one, John. Always the humble one.
2: Nah, I'm not a buyer. I'm just, you know, I have. No, I have nothing to buy. So giving me swag doesn't help.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here, everyone. Don't give John anything good. There's very little swag in HR. We get a mug
0: every so often, you know. But um, I see these, like, sales folks at every company I've ever worked before is like, wow, this sort of thing. But, John, you want to join us in the confusion matrix? Sure. Bring it on. Let's do it. So, uh, PSYOP 2024 is probably closer than we realize. Oh, my God. And where where a, is it? It's in Chicago. Chicago, it's- Chicago oh, my I, man. Then I'm definitely going. So, I mean, to this point, like, people need plans. You're a Chicago native. You live there, I think, your whole life, right? Pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So uh, where do we need to go eat? Where you, where, what's the restaurants of choice here?
1: Oh, can I even make uh, it a little bit more controversial? Okay. Lou Malnati's, Giordano's, Gino's.
2: Lou's. That's not controversial. <laughs> Lou's. <laughs> Lou's. Um, Lou's uh, the only con- controversial about my opinion on deep dish pizza is I, I love – I think Lou's is the best – and I would rather go for the crumbled sausage rather than the sausage patty.
1: Interesting. Okay, I don't know if I've uh, ever had that.
2: Oh yeah, no, no, it's it is a massive. Sl- it is a Texas-sized slab of of sausage on top of your pizza. It's just a little too much for oh, me. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. but uh, yeah, yeah, definitely lose for, for deep dish and and uh, you can argue, you know, deep dish versus other forms of pizza. I would argue that it's not something you eat every day. You got to appreciate it. it's deep dish. If you eat every day, you'll you'll kill yourself uh so don't don't <laughs> eat it every day but it is you know every once in a while superior to all other forms of pizza
0: so let's dig into it like where would we go for like an appetizer like what was the best yeah. appetizer in chicago gosh best
2: apps in chicago
0: yeah we're, we're gonna go on an adventure chicago adventure okay
2: i mean there's a lot of great restaurants in the west loop for example which isn't too far away from where i live i live in river north um, Cole you li- uh, Scott you live in you lived in Chicago right but I Cole have not. you did Don't I
1: lived you- in Chicago for a little bit yeah Yeah
2: yeah So um I like the West Loop a lot I like um
1: I like Haymarket
2: brewery uh, uh, quite a bit I like um I like Royster. this is a restaurant in Fulton Market I like The Publican all those places have great stuff one of my favorite bar food places um is Jefferson Tap which won't be too far away from the uh, hotel. We'll
0: well, be what's, your, what's your order? What, what are we getting there? Michael Cuban sandwich,
2: quesadillas oh. as the appetizer.
0: Okay.
2: Um, they make a pretty decent Manhattan for, uh, for a neighborhood bar, so I might probably get that.
0: Go there, mm-hmm. Illuminati's. What about dessert? <laughs> mm-hmm. Feel I exciting. like, uh,
2: yeah, I like, I actually like, this is not Chicago thing, but I like Jenny's ice cream a lot. I okay. think. I think it's Columbus. I think it's from Columbus, but I really like it. They opened up a couple of uh, restaurants around here.
1: A couple I of like, I mean, you still got it. Yeah. I, I was really excited. They actually opened up a Portillos not too far from me recently, and I've been crushing those hot dogs, man. <laughs> <laughs> They're yeah, so I, good. So <laughs> I'll tell you you, after the last
0: PSYOP in Chicago, I uh, had mm-hmm. the opportunity to stay an extra day. Like I missed my flight, and unfortunately, for the last time, bought a spirit flight back to Dallas at that time. Never gonna Ooh, do that again. Day. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Even though it's only like a two and a half hour flight. But I walk with field museum. I'm sitting there on the steps. And you're overlooking, uh, what's the name of the park? Grant Park? Is that what yep. it is? Mm-hmm. Grant Park. And they had a hot dog stand. I was like, I've never had a Chicago dog. Yeah. And I went and ate one. And it was fucking delicious. It yep. was like so good. Yeah. Oh, no.
2: Portillo's, I, I was a... I mean, I was a Portillo's early adopter. I mean, not that early because I think he started it like in the '60s. Um, but the fact he, but I, but he sold it to Warren Buffett. Um, so they've been expanding. They're in Texas now, and Arizona, and California, and Florida. Warren Buffett's uh, private equity firm bought it and oh my God, it's made like, I love going places now. And I'm like, wait, there's a Portillo's. I have to check this out.
1: (laughs) I'll say it now and I'll say it again. Thank you, Warren Buffett. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We we appreciate you expanding into Texas.
2: Yep. I actually just had, I just had, I had an Italian beef there um, last week. It'd been the first time I'd been there in at least a year. And I'm like, gosh, I need to, I need to come here more often. It's not good for you, but oh my God, it's good for the
1: soul. Absolutely. Well, you want to do some nerdery? Let's do some nerdery. Let's do it. Let's do it. You want to you want kick us off, bud? Yeah, let me let me kick us off, and I'm gonna set this up real quick. If I um, dominate
2: you, if I dominate you on the nerdery scale, do I get like a prize? I
1: I mean, you're probably gonna dominate us anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> <all right. laughs> here, how about this? Next time we get together, uh, I'll buy you a hot dog. How about Thank that? Thank you. All right. All right. So I saw I saw something come up, uh, Rob Briner, which is a guy we've talked about a few times on the pod. Uh, he does a lot with evidence-based management, um, and there's an article that he wrote that came out. Why we don't need the whole truth, um, but the gist of it is, and I thought this was a really interesting perspective because I am very much on the evidence-based train, and I think this is where I get off the train <laughs> um, because you know, the, 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 gist of it is saying something along the lines of would well, just follow the evidence, but you don't really need to pursue truth anymore. And I was like, ah, I don't know about that because I was always of the mind that, you know, per, like the whole scientific enterprise in general was the pursuit of truth. And this is where all of this quote unquote evidence comes from. And so I don't know, did you guys get a chance to, to look through this because I very much believe that we should be following the evidence where we can, um, but I don't. I want to make sure we don't lose the thread on the whole purpose of this. This exercise is to try to find the truth where it can be found. I think that's right. We want to be as close to the truth as possible. We we want to
0: be able to have data as accurate as possible. This sort of stuff. But I think what he's arguing for is probabilities. There's a lot of things that are not necessarily black and white, and you can only model things so well. So I think he's like largely arguing for the things that like Hubbard argues for, which is essentially confidence intervals. Like, what are the odds that this is gonna happen? Like, well, you know, there's a 50 to 70 percent chance that this is gonna happen. That's not definitely gonna happen. That's not definitely not gonna happen. It's in that that's life. You know, we don't know. There's a lot of variables around. Kind of like think of like a reorging uh, or org design, you know, this sort of thing. Lots of things can happen uh, or well, development, I, rather, you know, like th- there's all sorts of variables and like turning around that battleship. There's just so many factors that you can't. Well, I, I for. thought it
1: was kind of like a two by two chart because there's like, should you present things as probabilistic or should you not? And then should you pursue truth and should you not? And I'm definitely in the quadrant of absolutely present things probabilistically. But we should still be trying to pursue truth. Like, I, I think that, that that was where he kind of lost me. I think it's like it depends on the decision that's being made. Like, if it's high risk,
0: uh, it's going to change everything if you go through this door, then by all means, be as sure as possible. But it's kind of like common controversy. Like, if it's like thinking fast, thinking slow, and we want to move quickly, be agile, do a best guess heuristic sort of thing. As long as you know it's not going to make a big difference overall,
1: John. What do you think, buddy?
2: I'm, um, uh, God. You know, I was I was thinking today when I woke up. God, if it was only an opportunity to say post hoc or go propter hoc uh, on a podcast today, <laughs> my day
0: would be phenomenal.
2: Um, I understand where the two of you are coming from. I, I, his his problem or the problem he is trying to solve, I think, is very real in that. Um, industrial psychology and HR analytics are not a black or white thing. And it's really hard, uh, especially as a seller, by the way, to have that conversation with HR leaders. Uh, I, I mean, the best story, i give you a minute for a story. Uh, I remember I just started in this field and I sat down with Nancy Tippins at Valterra and she hands me a, tech, a validation study from a selection test uh, that she had developed or I, I think... And uh, I remember she's like walking me through the pages and the sections and, and I had, you know, I've got some, some math background, not a lot. It's not good. I, I can fake it more than I really understand it, but I'm following. And I get, we get to the correlation coefficients and they're like 0.4, 0.39, 0.4, 0.44. I think if I remember those numbers, right. And from all, there you go. And I'm like, okay, so this is one of the tests that failed. Right. And she was looking at me like, no, this is one of the really good tests. I'm that's like,
1: fantastic! It's a, yeah, yeah, she, I,
2: yeah. Like I mean, I think uh, that's that
1: engineer a, coming yeah, out. Looks,
2: <laughs> yeah. You no, know, absolutely. She looks at you over her glasses, and you're like, like I, I was worried she was going to roll up the test and hit me with it. Um, she probably would too. But, but when you talk to, <laughs> yeah. Oh no, absolutely. Oh no. no. I, and I would, and and yeah, and I would have deserved it and and appreciated the appreciated the love. Um, but but people don't get that. Like managers. Yeah. You're right. That's the engineering side of me, right? Managers in the field, they want to know the answer. They want to know what's A or better. They don't get that HR analytics techniques are designed to improve your odds. In fact, that was, I, I love that Scotty put it that way. Like I don't, you know, and, and when you buy, when you buy and sell selection testing too, by the way, every selection test out there starts with find the best employees. No, it's not <laughs> about finding the best employees. It's about, it's about eliminating the weakest employees in that you will then hopefully choose the, the, the best employees out there.
1: Yeah. It's and about would, reducing variance you know, yeah, as yeah, much as you can. Exactly. And so um,
2: I think that there is no, there, there is no, I'd say there is no right answer. HR isn't designed to find always the, the answer to find the singular you know, best employee or to make the singular best decision. It's all about improving your
0: odds. And it's it's at scale too. Like sometimes mm -hmm. we treat correlations of like 0.10 as if they were 1.0, which clearly they're not. But to your point, like this incremental evidence at Mm -hmm. scale, like over 100,000 employees, that's a big return. That's a big return. And of course you want to maximize your effect size, yada, yada, yada. But just getting a little bit better is way better than random choice.
2: Correct. So I think though, and managers you know, their, their managers are all about evidence-based, you know, management. Cause it's like, Oh, this, it worked this time. It should always work. Um, or I saw it work over here. It'll work here. So I think that the, I think the intent is correct. If you see things that have success, if you see techniques that have success in, in the business, you should absolutely replicate them. You know, if it worked for someone, let's replicate it. But, but the, the caveat to that is don't think about it that way. Think about it as I'm trying it again. Let's see if the results were the same. So, you know, go ahead. Yeah. And, and because there isn't, as I said, there is no, you're not going to like look at the sea of data and say, here's the right answer. Let's go that way. You're going to use it to find boundaries. So if you yeah. want to, if you want to practice, and this is what doctors do too, if you want to practice evidence-based medicine, that's fine. Just make sure that you're not, you, you don't, you the bias that comes with it is it's going to work or it still works. Make sure you're critical yeah. of the outcomes. And I think that's, I think that's a a safer way, I guess, not only a safer way, but I think that's how you're really going to understand the, you know, what, what the causes were of the solution.
1: But I'll give us credit that, I mean, us more than many other folks talk about the replication crisis quite a bit. And, you know bad scientific practices and those type of things and so i like that absolutely. can i can I, st-
2: can I steal that term i like i i, I like that <laughs> a replication crisis
1: oh i didn't invent it i promise you this is come a, on Cole, take a, credit uh yeah it was me i i confess <laughs> well scott do you want to talk about um i don't know some of the return you know, to office stuff that move we move on up with?
0: so rto is obviously a uh, big topic right now is probably a lot of companies are going to use this uh, upcoming holiday as the next uh, time where they're going to, you know, try and get people back to the office. It's been a long time coming. Uh, But essentially uh, most bosses regret how they mandated workers return to office. This is a fortune magazine article here. So 80% of managers uh, indicated that they would have taken a different approach to RTO if they had data. Uh, 50% say, uh, they, uh, had foregone a decision about workplace return to workplace, uh, because they lack data and 25% said they had to make a gut instinct decision, but it's difficult to ascertain the difference between effectiveness at home and in the office, right? This sort of like the battle we have seen between employees, but there is some evidence here. So, uh, remote workers, 10 to 20% less productive, whatever productivity means that means, uh, that weakens morale and bonding in the office. So especially among new employees that don't get the chance to meet their coworkers, this sort of thing, but uh, remote workers, they make more money. They're uh, fewer expenses, less stress, more time for family. So you get this tension here and you know, it's a, it's a struggle going on. Right. And managers are trying to do their best to get people back to the office.
1: You know, this was anecdotal. I, I talked to quite a few people you know, over the last year, year and a half, when these kind of debates were going on. One of the things I heard, not all the time, but often, and I think it might be related to this fact that, you know, the bosses are regretting it is at the time when these decisions were being made at many companies, bosses said, no, let's not ask our employees how they're going to react to this because that'll imply that they have some control over whether this, this decision is made or not. And now they're saying, well, we didn't have the data. It's like, yeah, you didn't have the data because you didn't ask, you know, and and you didn't want to know. And now you're reaping the consequences of that and having a little bit of buyer's remorse for how you went about doing this and using your gut instinct. So well done, bosses. Good job. (laughs) Well, I think the mandate seems to be the issue
0: here, right? It's like that lack of autonomy that you alluded to there, Cole, uh, where. It's one thing if I want to go in on my own. It's another thing if I'm told to go in.
1: Yeah. The outcome's yeah. the same
0: essentially. But
1: when I think, and, and there was enough data at the time. I mean, we've been covering it really closely for a long time. Mm-hmm. It, it like to show the different, like, okay, is it one day a week? Is it three days a week? What is how is this going to impact collaboration? You know, if you have a good people analytics function, you should know like. What percentage of your workforce is already distributed? How many people have moved since you know they previously were in the office? How many people joined the company since you know they were remotely? And how many people is this going to impact? What is the cost structure if you needed to relocate people? You know, all, all of these kind of things were were knowable um, if you had dedicated the right things. And so, I, I don't know. I I just kind of take umbrage a little bit with. Like, oh, we didn't have the data. It's like, well, you know, if you're a small company and you don't have this kind of dedicated function, absolutely, you probably didn't have the data. But a lot of these things were knowable, again, within a probabilistic boundaries that we were discussing earlier.
0: I, I think they're knowable, uh, at least people's perceptions. Like, I'm sure almost every company, large enough, asked people what they felt yeah. about return to office and this sort of thing. But there's also, like, what employees want isn't necessarily what's good for the organization and granted performance and all this sort of stuff is uh part of your job but it's not your total job as you know you famously said a long time ago like your part of your job is to be a good employee and like interact with others you know spread
1: ideas around and like this sort of stuff yeah i know john do you have any thoughts on this have you been a part of the whole return to office kind of world yeah.
2: Yeah. No, no. I mean, I, I've watched it all play out. I was part of it, you know, at, at Amazon. I, I do think, um, <laughs> I, I agree. I agree, Cole, with your statement. This was all knowable. I think, I think you could have, I think everyone, or at least if you were paying attention, you predicted this was going to happen is that, uh, yeah. you know, and, and part of it was driven by the pandemic where people made sweeping decisions to, to just keep the lights on and and lo and behold nothing exploded so people you know they took from that the, the 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 answer they took from that was oh this is fine so uh you know like you, you i have a, a buddy of mine uh from college who is an executive with a, a a market research firm a really famous market research firm and he was like we keep doing all these market research studies that say people like working from home more than they like being in the office. People are people think they're more productive or as productive. Um, and he would say, I'm I don't need to go back in the office. I'm more productive. And I, I'm like, do you have any idea what productive means? Mm-hmm. And there'd be this pause and he'd be like, well, productive. Uh, so so no one really had the data. You know, the people were people were making decisions about what their heart felt, you know, their what the heart was uh, rather than what the head was. And I think organizations uh, got swept up in that as well. They're they're watching CNN not C- or CNBC, and somebody you know Fortune magazine publishes a survey that they talked to and said everybody loves working from home. The employment brand is going to have to shift. So they were, ch- and then I think from my standpoint, companies are chasing the employment brand. We got to work from home. Everyone's got to work from home, and then they realize, you know, almost as if uh, a couple of I/O psychologists I know were to write a paper on intentionally being back in the office. Uh, Um, you know, they, they, they realize that these sweeping decisions aren't generating value for the customers, aren't generating the real sustainable improvements they want to see. And I think I, what I would like, if we could, if we could find ways to make this more intentional, then I think you'll see less uh, negative reaction from, from employees. But right now the the closest people come, come up with is three days a week, two days a week, X days a month. It's just, we're not, we don't, we don't argue it well, but you're right. It is really hard to put the genie back in the bottle once you've already let it go. And I think that's yeah. what people are complaining about.
1: Well, I'll back off a little bit of what I said earlier, cause like there were some people that were kind of first through the gate. It's tough being first through the gate, you know, you, and sometimes you don't know what the outcome is going to be. But I think for a lot of the companies that were kind of laggards, you know, in making these type of decisions, absolutely. You've seen what other companies were doing. The funny thing to me, and I'm curious if you have an opinion on this, Scott, is how often I see people posting contradictory claims. And this is per John's point about productivity and what is productivity. A week doesn't go by where I don't see somebody put, um, hey, the research is settled. Work from home shows that you're more productive. And then somebody else posts, the research is settled. Working in the office makes you more productive. (laughs) This is... This can't
0: both be true. As far as like return to office, the intentionality is really critical. So if people are coming into the office and their teammates are not there, once again, I come in Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Cole comes in, you know, Tuesday, Thursday. Why? (laughs) Why? (laughs) Why would we do that? You, You love the free coffee. We both love the free coffee, this sort of stuff. I mean, that, that's I, not collaborative. The, the whole reason to come into the office, I yeah. assume, is to be, you know, working with each other, get to know each other, uh, smooth the
1: workflow, generate ideas, all these sort of great things. This is meant to be more funny than factual. But I think people forgot during the pandemic that some people just dislike their coworkers and don't want to collaborate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I don't want to be in the office at the same time as Joe. Gosh, Joe, <laughs> I hate Joe. <laughs> oh, the good old days pre-pandemic. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think
2: it'll, you know, I, I, I think we need, I mean, I think the tools that are going to make hybrid or remote work work well, we're just, they just aren't there yet. Yeah, and I think, agreed. I think, I, I do think that eventually these problems will work themselves out, but, but yeah, you, but I, it, it is, you just, everyone got, everyone got lulled into a, well, you know, it's like what Michael said, you know, one of the, Michael's used to say all the time, or it still does, you know, like the pandemic uh, uh, pushed forward our understanding of organizational networks and, and, and research by 10 years. Well, it didn't actually get us the answer. It just pushed, our, you know, pushed <laughs> our, our, we, all we did was now understand it better. I'm like, Oh, that's great. I think once the tools catch up, employers will, let go a little bit more than they're letting go today. But the, it just living off of Zoom or living off of chime or living off of whatever, it just isn't, it just isn't, uh, it doesn't create the relationships that you want.
0: We need the metaverse, right? Yeah. So we can all just virtually meet. I remember
2: doing a big presentation at um, at uh, Verizon. Uh, and I remember, I, no, I remember what we were selling, but that's not relevant to the story, but they had me go to this room there was a room here in Chicago uh, in like an office and you walked in and it had a, it, you know, it was like a big conference room, it had a conference table, it had seats around the conference table and both walls were uh, video panels. So you, I sat down at my seat and of the other eight seats, there were, there was a full size video uh, of some person. And then there was a video in the center of the thing at the center of the the room where a video screen in the center of the room where people would show presentation docs and whatever. But it really was like it wasn't, you know, on a little camera on your desk. It was them, it was was depictions of people right with you. And I remember thinking at the time, I'm like, okay, this is this is completely different. This is this is a different experience. Um, and you I kind
1: like of
2: of no, they were, it was, it was you, it was a, it was a full size picture of me. I can only assume I wasn't in the other rooms, but I saw a full size
0: Cole sitting six feet away from <laughs> me. It's like, uh, Emperor Palpatine in star Wars mm-hmm.
1: or, uh, yep. Co- uh it? Michael Jackson
0: at yep. Coachella is the hologram? Yep. Yeah. I
1: mean, that's what it's gotta be. It's gotta be the full. Um what what is that called there's a word for that um yeah. hologram it's got to be like full hologram before i feel like all right we're there like mm-hmm. the technology has caught up to where we need to be yeah
2: but it was there this was this was 10 this is probably 10 years ago um i as i understand it the rooms cost like a million dollars a piece so it was not something that was cheap
0: <laughs> but it was
2: it was a totally different experience for me um like i c- i could get up and walk around um i love pre- i don't know about you Cole. i love i love pre- i, I I presenting um while sitting drives me crazy even in yes. even in the same room I am I'm am usually the one wandering the room you know waving crazy hey look at me um but Here's the uh, sales
1: guy coming out yeah
2: but I mean I I think uh know anyway, we'll get better I think the technology will get better I think the metaverse is going to help um somewhere um but uh we'll see what happens
1: yeah we will You know, I I was thinking about this while you were talking about, you know, how the future rolls forward. There's this quote that's been used a lot um, because of, you know, how the pandemic affected the future work is like, you know, there's some times where decades where nothing happens and then sometimes where decades happen in days. And I I was researching that the other day for somebody uh, for I was writing an article. You know who originally said that? It was Vladimir Lenin. (laughs) The creator of like the you know communist empire. I was like, oh shit. Well, maybe I'll quit using that one. <laughs> well, fun uh, fun
0: fact: there's a massive uh, Lenin statue in uh, Fremont here in Seattle. Like really? someone someone uh, an admirer Resc- rescued it. Yeah, and like they stuck it right on the main drag in Fremont, uh, Seattle. A right.
2: statue of Lenin.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'm gonna pivot to our, our last nerdery topic, uh, which has been surprisingly hot. Um, I didn't even think really that much of it um, when it first came out, but so I was scrolling through LinkedIn the other day and I, I found this post from Nick Bloom, who's um, a Stanford researcher who we've we've talked about quite a few times on the podcast before because he does really good research on the return to office debate. But he kind of waded into a new area about, Should you be paying remote workers a local salary rate or a global salary rate? And uh, I decided to kind of put together my own post on that topic and it just blew up. (laughs) People had so many feelings because really what it comes down to is, you know, the the high cost markets like New York City and San Francisco usually have a, a pretty large premium on the wages that they make and then everywhere else, um, you know, has, has a fraction of that. Um, and, and what I found in this, this kind of post and debate is if you were in New York and San Francisco, you were staunchly against the global pay rate. (laughs) You're like, you're going to come up with a reason. This is a bad, bad idea. But if you were somewhere else, you're like, Oh, this is great. We should, we should absolutely, I should be getting a 20% raise for sure. Um, but there were some interesting consequences of this discussion. Like, you know, one person said, you know, in the future, if, if this kind of thing continues and we don't have a global pay rate, companies are going to do reverse um, reverse uh, relocations. So taking, if you're in New York, they're going to actually pay you to move to a lower cost area and, and do something like that. And then other people weighed in saying things along the lines of like, well, what about people globally? This isn't just a U.S. phenomena. Mm-hmm. So if we have a global pay rate, you know, are the folks that are working and you know the Philippines or Malaysia or wherever it may be, like some of these low-cost countries, are they going to get like fifty and a hundred percent raise just to get to the global pay rate? And then there was a lot of talk about fairness, like you know, equal pay for equal work. I think that was kind of the tagline of the Lilly Ledbetter Act a few years ago, which had to do with like gender discrimination in pay. But does that apply to geographies too? If you have you know, one person in New York and another person in rural Georgia and they're doing the same work, should they be getting paid the same? I don't know. This, this was really interesting. I was surprised how much it blew up. Uh, do you, either of you have some thoughts on, on this topic? I'll let John weigh in here.
2: What I have seen, the, a, a, a unmeasured trend that I am seeing uh, in the U.S., is zoned based pay so a uh, number of companies uh you know usually and not actually no not i wouldn't say probably fortune thousand but maybe that maybe it's uh it's across even smaller businesses too are looking at um pay bands for you know coasts you know metropolitan coasts mm-hmm. midwest um, central at its at its heart it seems it seems reasonable to me but i actually don't you know i haven't seen the data behind it like i'd like to see i'd like to see a little more data that says um says that's relevant and the, and the reason why i'm i'm interested in it is because it should still be consistent within the you know if, you, if you, it still should be consistent within the zone right so as long as um you know at aws like or amazon i thought did this pretty well you know now there and their zones were i think only only san francisco was the only other zone we had uh but they you know like if you were in san francisco you made a little extra everyone made a little extra on their on their dollars um so i it, it makes sense to me it just needs i think the, i i think i would like to see the data before i um mm. before I, I i go for it because that way at least what i don't like about the global that, you know, kind of the statement globally is that there still are a lot of, you know, gradations of it. Um, Lots of shade. This is one of those things that have lots of shades of gray and the, and the, 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 the result that could be worse is now we have 405 pay zones, you know, in the world. And that I think is the issue, but, but I, I did like, I, I did, I am liking what I'm seeing about these companies saying, you know, US should be you know, four different zones, zones A, B, C, D, E, and it's, uh, they're looking at the highest markets, they're looking at the lowest markets, and they're just being really open about the impact that has on your pay. Um, but yeah. what you know, but, but no one says, actually, what, I, you know, what no one says, or no one's talking about yet is, you're right, what if I, um, what if I move? You know, if I move, do I get a do, do I have to take that impact? And I guess as long as you're open about it, too, I mean, this is, this is under the, this is, this is sort of relevant to some of the you know, return to office things you guys are talking about. As long as you're open about, Hey, we're going to pay you more. If you live in San Francisco, if you move, we're going to pay you less. If we, if, 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 that's well explained when you're taking the job um, as a potential case, then a lot of my issues with it are, um, are gone. Like I do, I do think we, we kind of come up with a new ideas. We, 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 we build the ship while sh- sailing an awful lot. Um, and that's where I think people get upset. Um, less than if we were open about it at the
0: beginning does that make sense that that transparency is uh, critical for all sorts of things that we do in organizations i think the question arises like why do companies pay differently in the first place and it's competitive advantage right Mm -hmm. if you pay the same in iowa as you do in san francisco you probably get a lot of people in iowa but if you need people in san francisco probably at a competitive disadvantage there uh however like going back to our conversation about uh, remote versus in office, if everyone is remote, then it probably should be global pay, right? You can, you can choose to live in San Francisco or you can choose to live in Des Moines. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, but you get paid the same. There is equity issues around, you know, if you're doing the same job for this equal pay, all this sort of stuff. Uh, But it's it's very nuanced and uh, I think it comes down to, the organization's mission, vision, and strategy. Well,
1: and this was because uh, John, you kind of brought this up, and somebody put this in the comments on on what on my post about it is too. Is like a prior company I used to work for. People had this hack, which I thought was pretty clever, where you know they were operating in a low cost city, and they would move to a high cost city, doing like a tour of duty for the company for a while and then move back to a low cost city because they would maintain the high high cost city pay rate. Yep. And so that was like their hack for dealing with this. And this seems to be something that companies are having to confront now. It's like, okay, well, I, you know, I moved out of my high cost city for my remote job. Should I maintain the pay that I had? Or mm-hmm. are we going to lower their pay? You know, and, and this is, this is a very, you know, pretty controversial subject. And, I mean, I imagine I, like, I don't have the data for this, but I imagine if uh, you reduce someone's salary pretty substantially, maybe their motivation goes down a little, a tad bit. So I, their, I, I don't know their engagement. I mean, yeah. Yes, well, yeah, perhaps. Well, and we already showed the relationship between engagement and job performance. So it's I don't a know.
0: psychological contract, right?
1: Your pay exactly. is a contract,
0: and like you expect certain, you get used to. <laughs> I'll yeah. put it that way. Get used to a certain lifestyle. Yeah. That's
2: interesting. You know, I didn't. I haven't thought about it that way. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's. I. I, I mean, th- this came up during the. This did come up during the pad during the shutdown, right? Where uh, there was one of a. You know, there was a big, um, uh, big competitor of, of uh, AWS. They were uh, they were always an in the office. They, 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 had, a, they had a made. They had a major hub on the the West Coast. They were an in the office type culture. And then when they sent everyone home, a lot of people moved, like in the middle of the pan. I mean, the, you know, really, you know, the the, the, mm-hmm. the markets were really uh, valuable. So people were, were, were leaving. And um, uh, with a no, no strategy to go to go back to the office, should they should they uh, uh, should return office ever show up. So in some ways, you know, you could argue, oh, that's on the employees, they shouldn't have moved without, you know, really knowing the future. But they didn't know, uh, but they did take that high, you know, San Francisco Bay area, uh, salary with them. And there were, there were a lot of, uh, I don't actually know what happened, but I remember seeing in the paper that they were talking about reducing, reducing that for people that had quit. And there was a lot of, uh, hemming and hawing. Mm. I don't know. That's yeah. a, I don't know. Yeah. That's a really good point. I've never, I haven't really thought about it in a long time compensation uh, you know, local compensation rates. Um, but I like what Scotty said. Where I, I like what Scotty said. Where uh, you know, if if we're gonna go, if we're gonna all be virtual, then we're gonna have a salary, and then where you live is your choice.
1: I will make one plug. There is a theory out there that can address this issue directly, and it's called "everyone gets paid the same." So I just want to just plug that back in there a little bit. Go with the oldie but a goodie. So check that one out as well. Uh, but John, this has been a, a fun and meandering conversation. I love talking about hot dogs and pizzas and, and all the good stuff that you bring to the podcast. So, uh, before I give you the final words, Scott, any, any parting words for John? Uh, yeah, I guess it's time to live, laugh, leave. John's been great having you.
0: <laughs> Thanks, how, so how would you rate your experience here?
2: This is, uh, this was a lot of fun. I would do it again in a heartbeat. So thank you very much.
1: Thanks so much for joining us, John. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott and John Eisenstark. Thanks, John.
0: Thanks, guys. As always, all opinions are own and do not reflect those of any other organization.
1: You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott.